take a walk, a half century into the past, up the steps and in the door of the Greenville County Courthouse. You walk down the hall and there's a series of offices. And into the courtroom where Charles Wakefield Jr. stood trial in 1976 for the murders of Rufus and Frank Looper. Right off to the right of it was the court reporter's office where Liz Bobo and another woman whose name I can't remember would sit and smoke cigarettes. So when they opened the door, a cloud of smoke would come out like nothing you've ever seen. Back then, the courtroom was huge. And you'd go in and you'd be on the first aisle of the courtroom. There's room in there for 350 or 400 people. Frank Epps Jr.'s father was the judge. The younger Frank practices today in smaller, more sterile courtrooms. And he gets nostalgic just thinking about that room where his dad sat on the bench. Honestly, the courtrooms are smaller now and it's just different. I like big courtrooms. For some reason, there's people that design them that don't think big courtrooms are a thing, but I like them and I think you miss the whole flavor of the main courtroom in Greenville and how big it was and how full it was of people and, and the interaction of it. Judge Epps' son remembers all of his years at the courthouse and a woman named Mabel who sat in the front row every day of court. She'd sit there and hold out her hand and lawyers would give her a quarter before they went up to the bench and some lawyers viewed it as a tax and some lawyers viewed it as a good luck charm. Mabel was a fixture, a somebody in that courtroom, but not the only one. The courthouse in those days was chock full of people every day that there was court. There were people doing other court business. There were people that just showed up. There was no internet. There were three channels on television. Watching a trial was like going to the theater or the movies or a ball game. You would sit there and watch, and trials sometimes get slow, but it always seemed interesting. If any old trial could fill the room, Imagine what it was like when Charles Wakefield Jr.'s trial began. A trial like this wound up being a big deal because there were a lot of people in there watching that felt like they were involved in it and talking about it. Even if it's hard to picture for most people in Greenville today, there is one man who needs no imagination to know exactly what it was like that week in February 1976. This is a photo right here of me being um, escorted to trial. That week, Charles Wakefield Jr. was in the middle of a courtroom drama. A stranger in a room full of courthouse regulars. People who could call themselves somebody. Wakefield knew what he was. And he was terrified. Couldn't rest and I couldn't eat. I was uncertain about what was going to happen to me, you know. I felt like I didn't have any kind of control over the situation. <laughs> that was a, This was a very bad time for me right here. The trial lasted only four days from jury selection to death sentence. Most of it a daze for Wakefield. The courtroom was, was full. Police officers everywhere. It was a moment of realization that something bad, real bad, was getting ready to happen to me. I was scared. I was scared. They had me. They had me trapped. I knew they was going to kill me. Inside that courthouse, men battled in a trial so twisted and confusing it's almost impossible to imagine it happening today or ever. A trial with a result so controversial, the story is back on the front page of the newspaper 
and rocking the city of Greenville, South Carolina in 2020. I'm Brad Willis. This is Murder, Etc. When you think of a criminal trial, what do you picture? The Perry Mason moment with surprise new evidence? Tom Cruise and Jack Nicholson screaming at each other about the truth and who can handle it? Or Law and Order, where the crime, investigation, and trial all happen in the span of an hour? It's all very dramatic and all very much impossible in today's courtrooms. We don't have that today. Pretty much everybody knows what's coming. You're not going to have uh, a situation where a bomb gets dropped on you. If it does, you knew it was coming. That is Warren Mowry. 40 years ago, just a few years after Wakefield's trial, he was new to town and beginning his career as a prosecutor in Greenville County and confused about how people wouldn't talk about the recent past or the last sheriff. It was funny. The only sheriff I knew was Johnny Mac Brown. People would tell me, oh, he ran against Cash Williams and beat him. And I, I would ask, who is Cash Williams? And people would hem and haw and not tell me anything. I mean, they would, they would just want to change the subject. It was almost as if they didn't want to invoke his name. <laughs> Greenville's people of the early 80s were already trying to put the Cash Williams era behind them and forget that the county wasn't even a decade removed from rampant corruption, murder for hire, and rumors the sheriff was behind the Looper murders. It was very strange. I frankly did not know a lot of the stuff that had gone on in the early and mid-70s. That was almost ancient history, and people did not want to talk about it. Mowry has four decades of experience in both prosecuting cases in South Carolina and teaching criminal justice. He agreed to help us understand the Charles Wakefield Jr. death penalty trial and how it played out in a much different era under much different rules. It's a phenomenal amount of work. It is so difficult anymore that death penalties have become a rarity. We can argue all day whether or not they're cruel, but they are certainly becoming unusual. In modern death penalty trials, a year or more can pass between an indictment and the trial. Wakefield's preliminary hearing happened on November 11th, 1975. His trial started less than four months later, on February 23rd, 1976. And if that seems quick to you, consider this. The man responsible for defending Wakefield didn't have even four months to prepare his case. He had 26 days. That man was Grover Buddy Parnell. I met Buddy at a football game at Walford College. I was a cheerleader from Converse College. And he came out of the stands and pointed at me and said, hey, little girl, I'm going to marry you. And sure enough, he did. We were married, and he went to Vietnam six weeks later. Mary Jane Parnell is, by her own admission, from the side of the city that had no idea what was going on in West Greenville. 
I see life as having sort of a line going down the middle. I grew up on one side of that line and on that side of it, I never was exposed or really saw anything out of the comfort and predictability. I sort of knew from an early age how my life was going to, you know, I was going to go to college, I was going to get married, I was going to join the Junior League and have three children. And I mean, it was like this prediction of life. And it was great. It was wonderful. It was very easy and, and very, very comfortable. Her family had been around Greenville for generations. Buddy Parnell grew up an hour south in Greenwood County. Those 60 miles made Buddy a newcomer to Greenville and a stranger to that very predictable life his wife had led. Buddy felt strongly about defense and making sure that everybody had the right to a good, fair shot at the legal system. So he ended up taking a job with the public defender's office. Mary Jane's family was, at best, very confused. Here was a man who had married into a Southern dynasty and could write his own future. He had potential connections in this town that he could have used very, very easily. And my own father was sort of like, I'm not sure why you're doing this. You know, you could work with the whatever firm, you know, if you wanted to. And he was like, nope, nope, this is, this is what I want to do. Buddy Parnell could have had a corner office overlooking the city or a well-cleared path to the state house. This is Buddy and Mary Jane's daughter, Lizzie. He was not a protester. He was, I mean, he went to Vietnam. He, he went to law school. He was from the South. He had the people in political positions everywhere that would have done whatever for him had he wanted to go that route. Instead, Buddy Parnell stuck with defense work. Buddy felt very strongly about defending people who often were either overlooked or didn't have the means to get a good defense or defend themselves. He felt very, very strongly about this. And that's how he ended up being the man responsible for trying to save Charles Wakefield Jr.'s life. This whole trial seems to have just come out of nowhere. It sort of just sucked up all the energy that was around what was going on with us. That's because Buddy Parnell had no idea he was going to be Charles Wakefield Jr.'s lawyer until 26 days before trial. The previous November, a judge had assigned a county public defender, Pete Partee, to the case. And then, in December, Partee had a heart attack. He lived through it, but he couldn't work. So Judge Frank Epps appointed Buddy Parnell as lead counsel. Mary Jane remembers that moment, hitting their home like a midnight tornado. There's a block of no information, and then all of a sudden there's this trial and all of this impetus and all of this urgency. It just suddenly, Buddy became consumed with this trial. Parnell asked Epps to give him more time, but Epps refused, saying the second chair on the defense team, a then-young attorney named Larry Cook, who wasn't yet qualified to be a lead counsel on a death penalty case, had been assisting the original public defender. And Epps said that young attorney could get Parnell caught up on the case. Never going to happen today. Warren Mowry says in a 2020 courtroom, a death penalty case would almost never go to trial in less than four months. And giving an attorney a little more than three weeks to prepare is unheard of. There is no way that a lead attorney is going to have to try a death penalty case in four weeks. It, it doesn't really matter that the second chair uh, might have some knowledge of it. It's going to matter what the first chair would have known. And he's going to have to familiarize himself with the case. And I mean, every jot and tittle of the case has to be. You're just not going to get rushed on a death penalty case. 
Mori says no matter when the trial happens, a defense team is almost always going to ask for more time, known in court as a continuance. Most of the time, it's just bull. It's almost as if the boy cried wolf. One too many times. But in a case like this, when you're looking at somebody's life being at stake, not just his liberty, but his life, the courts are going to err on the side of granting the continuance. They are almost invariably going to do that. The reason, Mori says, is not giving the defense enough time to prepare is a point the defense could use to appeal any conviction. Trial judges don't like getting reversed. They don't like making a decision that an appellate court is going to scrutinize and decide you screwed up. It just isn't going to happen. That means they're going to err on the side of the defense in a case like that. Mulry may be right about what most judges would do, but when it came to what most judges would do, Judge Frank Epps never seemed to give a damn. My grandfather was a lawyer, and my father was just a happy person that I'm not 100% sure ever thought about being a lawyer before World War II. Frank Epps Jr. talks about his father with eternal reverence. Frank Sr. went to the University of South Carolina on the GI Bill. He wanted to be a legislative page, but couldn't get the job. And so, as he would do for the rest of his life, Epps did it his way. As a college sophomore, he got himself elected to the state legislature, and after that went to law school, where again, his wishes ran into a wall. One of the professors opined that it took too much time to be in the legislature and he probably shouldn't be in law school. And that professor, interestingly enough, had been turned down for a judgeship not long before that. So my father got a bad grade to class and was asked to leave the law school, which he did, and then he read for the bar. Reading for the bar may not be something you've heard of, but it's a real thing. A way someone can become a lawyer, and eventually a judge, without ever graduating from law school. Abraham Lincoln, John Marshall, Strom Thurmond, all became lawyers the same way. Frank Epps Sr. did. He was the last sitting judge in South Carolina who had read for the bar. Then, in 1962, Epps ran to be a circuit judge and won. And it's impossible to overstate just how big his reputation was and remains today. A justice on the state Supreme Court called Epps the most beloved person to ever wear the black robe in South Carolina. Senator Fritz Hollings called Epps the best friend he could ever have. Red Book Magazine called Epps one of the country's most sexist judges. You can't win them all. He was a person that always did his best with the information that he had. So he tried to judge people based on what he knew about them and what he knew about the case and what he thought was a just result and what he thought was the best thing for them. Judge Epps built a reputation as a man who would give someone a second chance. And then, if they messed up again, throw the book at them. He didn't trouble himself over the things that people tend to get caught up in now, which was, you know, if they got out and did something else. There's some of them that are going to get out and do great things, and there's some of them that are going to get out and do horrible things. And my father did the best he could with the information he had, and he didn't worry about that. Some judges will fret themselves to distraction, trying to be seers into the future. Judge Epps didn't worry so much about the future or what people thought of him. One time, he sponsored a gambling kingpin, one who had stood before him in his own courtroom for membership at his country club. One day in court, Epps took off his own belt and sentenced a kid to a spanking delivered by the kid's grandma. Yet another time, and this got the judge an admonishment from the state legislature, Epps had James Brown, 
the godfather of soul, pulled out of jail and brought to the courthouse to talk about drugs in prison and sign some autographs. Frank Jr., now a defense attorney, makes no apologies for his father's ways. And he maintains a particular kind of pragmatism his dad probably would have liked. As a criminal defense lawyer, it's always an interesting dichotomy between the way people want to treat your clients and talk about your clients and the fact that you know them as human beings. Frank Jr. said that on the tail end of explaining how, no matter how much his father loved the law, that love didn't affect his longtime friendships, even with a man who proved to be a corrupt cop and convicted member of the Dawson gang. The day after the governor's race, when my father had lost, we had to clean out a building where his campaign headquarters were. And the two people that showed up were a sled agent who was one of my father's best friends and Bub Skelton. And I always thought a lot of Bub for coming to help do that. That helped me that day. And those few stories don't begin to tell Judge Epps' full legacy. But they set the stage for a time he put on his robe and began to preside over one of the biggest and most controversial trials of his career. You've probably heard the legal term discovery. It's the rule that compels prosecutors to turn over certain evidence to the defense, especially if that evidence could help the defendant's case. Your frame of reference for those rules might be the same as defense attorney Buddy Parnell's daughter, Lizzie's. Discovery is a legal process where they have to share all of the information that they have. What they do now, because they have to give you everything, is they will give you literally everything and they will roll in boxes and boxes of pieces of paper mm -hmm, to make it harder because they have to give you everything. And they want to try to bury the one piece of paper in 12,000 pieces of paper. Well, that's a loose interpretation of the rules. It's relatively close. I had dinner with Lizzie one night, and I told her when it came to discovery, her father got almost nothing from the police file. Hundreds of pages, dozens of reports that listed dozens of other potential suspects, and talked about a hitman and the Dawson gang and their hideout at Adams Junkyard and the year-long investigation into a man named Larry Poole. Buddy Parnell never got a chance to see it, which surprised the hell out of Lizzie, who, credit where credit's due, saw the movie My Cousin Vinny. Joe Pesci's all excited because the other guy just turned over all the documents and all the evidence and he didn't even have to ask for it. Right. Marissa Tomei is like, yeah, he's supposed to give you two. It's called discovery. I'm no legal scholar, but I've covered more than my share of trials and at least five death penalty cases. And I didn't think Lizzie or my cousin Vinny were that far off. Was it possible the police and prosecutors could have reports that could directly contradict the state's case and essentially hide them from the defense team? If you've listened closely, you've heard us talk a lot about the eyewitnesses, the police interview the day of the murders, who never reported seeing the people who claimed to be eyewitnesses on the stand in Wakefield's trial. You might also remember, I asked Prosecutor Billy Wilkins about those people. Uh, you never used them, and I was curious why. You I don't recall why. I really don't. Yeah, I mean, I'm just... Um, and I'm not going to try to force you to try to... No, no, I, I, I just don't... I'm, I'm sure I evaluated and decided one way or the other. Um... But I, I don't. I don't recall why I, I didn't call. I didn't. I didn't either need them, or I didn't think they helped the case. Or at the time of this interview with Wilkins, I couldn't wrap my head around the fact the jury never heard from the eyewitnesses Edna Mashburn and Viola Owens, people who could have gotten on the stand and said Charles Wakefield either was or was not the man they saw running away from the Looper property on the day of the murders. Wakefield's 2001 attorney Eric Gottlieb explained Billy Wilkins' strategy. Pretty succinctly. 
Well, look, when you're litigating, your role is to put forth your your best case, right? And you're going to call the witnesses that best support your theory. So if Viola Owens or Edna May Mashburn didn't add to the strength of your case, then yeah, you, you don't call them. Now, why the defense wouldn't call them, you know, that's a different question. So I wondered, did the cops and prosecutors have to tell Wakefield and his attorneys about those women or anything else the police found? In short, nope, not 1976. To understand why, I needed a much better understanding of a 1960s-era Supreme Court ruling in the landmark case of Brady versus Maryland. For that, Brady was not quite brand new. We go back to Warren Mowry. But still had the, the new car smell to it. To explain how one of the most important constitutional rulings in the history of criminal procedure did nothing to help Charles Wakefield Jr.'s defense in 1976. Quite frankly, the prosecution and the defense, for that matter, were still feeling their way around Brady. What did it mean exactly? If you define it strictly, if it doesn't indicate somebody is not guilty of the crime, that it doesn't need to be turned over. Put another way, back in 1976, because all of those witness statements and other suspects weren't proof of Charles Wakefield's innocence, Prosecutor Billy Wilkins had good reason to believe he didn't have to share them with the defense. And Judge Epps agreed. Chances are, though, Wilkins could not have pulled that same move today. Courts have interpreted it much more broadly since then. Um, essentially say that if it tends to help the defense, basically, uh, maybe you can catch some state's witness in a lie, then that has to be turned over to the defense. It was not unusual to have the prosecution and defense play gotcha. They would try a case by ambush. And each side would be left scrambling to, to, to try to overcome the effect that that, that surprise witness might have had. Mori says these days, at the very least, an attorney should have a judge look over anything the prosecutor is even the least bit worried might be a Brady violation. As a prosecutor, Mori values his integrity more than his conviction rate. The one thing I don't ever want to do is become suspected of hiding evidence. I always thought that I should be able to tell a defense, I'm going to throw a punch and it's going to be with my right hand and it's going to be a straight right and it's coming within the next 10 seconds. Here it is. You ready? Here it comes. I would rather do that than do some sneaky little rabbit punch. Quite frankly, in modern day, my reputation means too much to me to try to pull something sneaky. But Warren Mowry's 21st century reality and the reality of 1976 are much different. What the court might look on as sneaky and dishonorable in 2020 was just fine 44 years ago. It was a different story back in the 70s. It was a lot more wide open. And the prosecution and the defense were operating under the rules as they existed at the time. They were honorable people then. They were doing what the law required, just as I am today, but it was a different set of rules. Judge Epps decided all of that before the trial began on February 23, 1976. He presided over jury selection, which, as you learned in episode 24, turned out to produce an all-white jury that leaned in favor of the death penalty. Then, Prosecutor Billy Wilkins began his case against Charles Wakefield, Jr., Billy Wilkins, who, like Judge Epps, 
was the son of a lawyer. Even when I was in junior high, even in the summertime, I would hang around his office some, and he would take me to the courthouse, which was just a block away, and put me in the courtroom, and I would sit there and watch trials. And I could see the lawyers that I thought were more effective than others. And I decided at an early age that as soon as I could do it, I wanted to be the solicitor. I wanted to be that the public's lawyer in the courtroom. That path led Wilkins to the Greenville County Courthouse, through the smoky hallway, and into the room where he would, only a year after taking office, do the work that sent Charles Wakefield Jr. to death row. On day one, after a half day of jury selection, Wilkins burned through more than half of his witness list over the course of an afternoon. Beat cops, ambulance and hospital staff members, forensic techs, not one of them could offer any evidence against Charles Wakefield Jr. No fingerprints, gunshot residue, footprints, blood, nothing that could put Charles Wakefield Jr. in the Looper garage on the afternoon of January 31st, 1975. Wilkins didn't mention the fact Wakefield passed a lie detector test administered by the state police. Or, when injected with truth serum, Wakefield didn't confess. Or, that Frank Looper's house had been shot up not too long before his murder. Because Wilkins' case was based on the idea the murders happened when Wakefield was trying to rob Rufus Looper. Wilkins asked witnesses over and over again if they found Looper's wallet on the day of the murders. All of Wilkins' witnesses said they had not. Wakefield's defense attorney responded by asking, were you looking for a wallet? The witnesses said they were not. After one day of trial, the court had produced a jury to sit in judgment of Charles Wakefield Jr. and absolutely no evidence against him. Anyone watching could have been forgiven for thinking Wilkins didn't have much of a case. Those people would have been vastly underestimating just how good Prosecutor Billy Wilkins was at his job. They called his name, you know, like the old West days, you know, Wyatt Earp Hopper. That is coming up right after this short break. My name is Chuck Reese. I'm the editor of an online magazine called The Bitter Southerner. And if you've been a hardcore listener of Murder Etc., you might have heard my name on this show a couple of times. Brad Willis is one of the many writers who has helped us break down misconceptions about the South ever since we started six years ago. And on The Bitter Southerner podcast with Georgia Public Broadcasting, We challenge those stereotypes across the board and paint a very different picture of the American South. Please join me for the Bitter Southerner podcast. You can subscribe for free at gpb.org slash podcast or on your favorite podcast app. They played that thing like a, it was, it was like a circus. It was the second day of Charles Wakefield Jr.'s trial, 9.40 a.m., and juror Elizabeth Mitchell was a mess. Judge Epps had sequestered the jurors, 
sent them to a hotel the night before to make sure nothing outside of the testimony influenced their decision in the case. At 1 a.m., though, Mrs. Mitchell made a break for it because she was sick to death. Not about the Loopers or Wakefield or the hotel. Mrs. Mitchell couldn't sleep all night because she was worried about her dog. So Judge Epps, after some reflection, told Mrs. Mitchell to go home. If that changed Charles Wakefield's fate in any way, we'll never know. We only know the jury traded a 59-year-old dog lover for the alternate, a 54-year-old World War II hero. It was nearly 10 a.m., but Charles Wakefield's nightmares were just waking up. Buddy Parnell had tried a lot of cases by that point in his career, but his wife, Mary Jane, had never seen him in action when she walked in to the Wakefield trial. I can vividly remember seeing Charles Wakefield sitting there and thinking, there's no way, there's no way you're going to make it. No way. He was big and he had a huge afro and he looked just like the persona that everybody would look at him and say, well, you did it. Day one of the trial offered no solid evidence against Wakefield. But on day two, Prosecutor Billy Wilkins unloaded. First up on the stand, a man named Silas Jones, an escape artist who said he couldn't even remember how many times he broke out of prison. While on the lam at Christmas time, 1974, Silas got busted with a sawed-off shotgun and caught a federal charge on top of his state charges. Silas Jones was in trouble. Until, out of nowhere, a Greenville police officer showed up, put him in chains, and drove him to Greenville and Jim Christopher. A few weeks later, with no explanation, Silas Jones was out of prison, on a Greyhound bus, and back with his wife. A few months after that, Silas Jones told Wakefield's jury he overheard Wakefield and a man named Peabody Brown hatching a plot to get the reward money in the Looper case by pinning the murders on another man. Wakefield knew what Peabody had done, but said he was never involved. And Wilkins didn't put anyone on the stand to back up what Silas said. Regardless, remember Peabody, Silas, and that reward money. You'll hear about them again. After Silas, Wakefield's nightmare got much worse. They called his name, you know, like the old West days, you know, Wyatt Earp Harper. Wyatt Earp Harper, the closer, a sharp-dressed surprise witness with a story to tell. When he came in, he had on a gold two-piece suit and a black shirt and black shoes. During day one, Judge Frank Epps pulled defense attorney Buddy Parnell aside and said he heard Wilkins was keeping a secret witness at the old city jail. Epps let the cat out the bag, told Parnell that Harper was going to come and testify that he and I committed the crime. 
So Parnell rushed to the old jail. He found Harper, and Harper lied to him, saying he wasn't going to testify. And then, a day later, into the courtroom he walked like a nightmare cowboy. You know, Wyatt up Harper, when I first heard that name, I thought they was talking about a fictional character. It, it was just unbelievable. Here's how Billy Wilkins explained the surprise witness to me. They didn't know about everything. They didn't know about Wyatt Earp Harper until like two days before the trial started. Right. Yeah, that's right. Well, of course, why he, 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 he was very close to the, the trial because I was going to go to trial with what I had. I'd made the decision to go forward before I even before Harper even. We knew knew that he had any information, but it, it he came on pretty, pretty, pretty short shortly before the trial. I mean, it was not like two or three months ahead of time. It was within a couple of three weeks. Wilkins said. Harper wasn't even part of his initial case. But police had been working with Harper since November, months before the trial. And Wakefield's defense team had nothing on the guy. Nobody had heard of Harper. Wilkins told Judge Epps he'd put Harper in the old city jail to protect his safety and instructed Harper he didn't have to tell anyone anything about what he was doing. Today, it would be a lot harder to pull that off, according to longtime prosecutor Warren Mowry. Courts are less and less and less likely to let the identities of witnesses remain secret. Normally, you've got to reveal virtually everything, and I mean early on. If you do it six weeks before trial, sometimes the courts say, ah, didn't give them enough time, we'll give them a continuance, or you can't use this guy. They can, they can be pretty brutal about it. So that's another reason that, that prosecution has to be careful about what they do. Nevertheless, Judge Epps allowed Harper to testify to what he would years later admit was a lie, one he said the police and prosecutors coached him to tell. Just like Silas Jones, the police had plucked Harper out of prison, and he had chosen to give them a story they wanted to hear. A few years later, a psychiatrist interviewed Harper and filed a report saying Harper's testimony happened under, quote, unusual circumstances, and that Harper was easily swayed by people in power. But none of that mattered. The jury never knew about it. They only heard the story Harper would later say was a lie, that he stood guard while Wakefield robbed and killed Rufus and Frank Looper. After a ballistics expert testified about the bullets that killed the Loopers, Billy Wilkins called Vera Looper to the stand to talk about the day she saw a black man walk into her garage and about hearing the shots that killed her husband and son. Her testimony was heartbreaking, but it lacked one important detail. This is Frank Looper's cousin, Adele. My Aunt Vera saw this suspicious, strange person going into the garage. The description of this person that she saw and Charles are nothing alike. On the stand, when asked whether she could identify the man she saw in her driveway, sitting in the courtroom, Vera Looper said she could not, which really wasn't a surprise because a couple of months earlier, she'd gone to a police lineup where Wakefield was among the men in the room. 
Vera went to the lineup and I think shocked everyone and said, no, I, I, I can't say that that man, Charles Wakefield, is the guy I saw that day my husband and son were murdered. To put that as clearly as possible, the woman who saw the black man walking in front of her house all morning and watched him walk up the driveway into the garage, come out, go back in, and then run away. That woman had two chances to identify the black man as Charles Wakefield Jr., and she refused to do so both times. So far, the prosecution had presented a lot of evidence, but the only evidence that mentioned Charles Wakefield Jr. came from two guys who had been sitting in state prison just months earlier. And Billy Wilkins only had two witnesses left. You already know who the next one is. Billy Wilkins called up Miss May McIntyre. Eight months after the murders, her daughter Diane begged her to talk to the police and help them. You might remember how Billy Wilkins described May. I mean, she was a very believable and she's a very Christian person. I mean, she wouldn't lie if her life and her daughter and everybody else depended on, I don't think. Miss May testified she saw Charles Wakefield Jr. walking up to the Looper garage just before the murders. Since then, her son has said he doesn't believe she was there. And the Looper family says the same. This is Rufus Looper's sister, Frank Looper's aunt, Julia McCauley. This lady that was in the Salvation Army, months later she decided to identify him and she couldn't remember that. She should have come forth early. I think she was paid to go forward with that. Paid to go forward. We can't prove that. But the McIntyre family did not forget about the reward money in that case either. You'll remember Leonard Brown. And then Don McIntyre, if you know Don, and Don and them was trying to get something done on his sister's husband or some bullshit. He said after the trial, he heard from a buddy of his at the newspaper who said the McIntyres wanted his help. And said they was promised a damn reward on this Looper case, and they want me to write a story about it because the, they ain't never given them no money, and they can't get them to give them no money. Eventually, McIntyre got paid $5,000 in reward money. By today's standards, that cash would have been worth more than $20,000. Wakefield's defense team, however, believed McIntyre's motivation was more deeply rooted in a story you heard part of in another episode. Let's go back to Leonard Brown. If you know Miss McIntyre, well, you know she was wanting her son-in-law out of jail. May's daughter, Diane, had married a man named Mike Cowart, a heroin addict who had just gone to prison on a 24-year sentence. And once he got to prison, he scrambled to find a way to get out and hired a young local attorney named Dick Water. Well, Dick Water represented him. Water told me that he had uh, something going on to get him out of jail. Water didn't want to talk to us for the podcast, but according to Leonard Brown's story, lead detective Jim Christopher asked Water to slow down a little while working on the Cowart case. Christopher come told him, said, want him to hold off on that because we're working on something. We need that boy still in jail. That's something Christopher needed, according to Wakefield's defense team and court transcripts, was almost certainly helping to put Charles Wakefield Jr. away. Wakefield's defense team tried to call Dick Warder to speak in front of the jury, 
but Billy Wilkins protested, and Judge Epps asked the jury to leave the room. While the jury was out, Warder explained Jim Christopher had called and said Mike Cowart was going to help him on a case, and Christopher said he would work to get Cowart's 24-year sentence reduced. And then later, Warder said he talked with Jim Christopher specifically about the Wakefield case. Jurors might have been shocked to hear that testimony, if they'd ever had a chance to hear it. Judge Epps ruled Dick Warder's testimony was hearsay, and the jury was never the wiser. Billy Wilkins had just one witness left, and you know him already, too. How long have you been in office now? Two and a half long years. Last up for the prosecution, Sheriff Cash Williams. If you've listened to the special reports we filed not long before this episode, you know police recently uncovered, and then subsequently lost, a letter from Cash Williams' mistress. And that letter, according to police, was about the Looper murders. Since that time, Police Chief Ken Miller resigned from the Greenville Police. But this is what he said about the letter in the summer of 2019. It was a letter from one who said that he and some of his uh, team members may have been involved in that murder and framed this individual. That letter never saw the light of day back in the 1970s. Back then, Williams wasn't defending himself on the stand. He was testifying against Charles Wakefield Jr. Billy Wilkins was trying to prove that Wakefield killed a law enforcement officer while that officer was in the line of duty. Wilkins didn't call one-time dispatcher Jeanette Green, one of the last people to see Frank Looper alive. Frank came to the window and said, Danette, I'm going home, been working on something all night. I'm tired, I'm going to be at mom and dad's, and if y'all need me, call me. I'll be home getting a few hours sleep. Instead, Wilkins put the sheriff up on the stand to say, it didn't matter that Looper had been wearing bedroom slippers that afternoon. Because Looper was a narc, Williams said he was on duty 24-7. And the word of Cash Williams was good enough for the jury. And with that, the prosecution rested. The Wakefield defense theory was simple. Charles Wakefield Jr. wasn't anywhere near the Looper garage that day, and he had 10 witnesses to prove it. Witnesses who testified about giving Charles Wakefield a ride downtown, about his appointment at the unemployment office, and walking to his aunt's house, shampooing the rug, and then returning the carpet cleaning machine. After all of those witnesses testified, Wakefield took the stand to defend himself. And that was that. After closing arguments, the jury got the case at 2.15 p.m. At 6.08 p.m., less than four hours later, the jury came back. Charles Wakefield Jr. stood up in front of the judge. 
Frank Epps, he asked me, you know, to stand and everything, and I stood up. I told him about the witnesses and that didn't have time and opportunity to get all the witnesses, you know, that I had, you know, presented and everything, you know, and that I felt like I didn't have a fair trial. Judge Epps made sure Wakefield's comments were recorded for posterity. And then, he sentenced Charles Wakefield Jr. to die. Charles Wakefield, I confine you to the South Carolina Department of Corrections to be held in a confinement until April 26, 1976. And there you are to be electrocuted. May God have mercy on your soul. Less than four months after being indicted, after a trial that lasted only four days, any hope Charles Wakefield Jr. had in Greenville County vanished. I was trying to gather myself. My wife was crying. She had my daughter in her arms, and my, my daughter was crying, you know. And I just heard them crying and crying, crying and crying. They, didn't say, they just crying. All I could hear they was crying. In the middle of the chaos, Wakefield heard the voice of the woman he'd married. And I heard his voice. And she said, Oh Lord, Mom. They're going to kill him. That was the plan. They were going to kill him. Although an automatic appeal delayed the execution date, Judge Epps told Wakefield that day he'd die in the electric chair in less than two months. Justice as far as the Greenville County Courthouse was concerned, had been served. Everything happened so fast, it would have been almost impossible for anyone to catch everything. It was only with time that other attorneys, Wakefield and the Looper family, started to discover a lot of things the jury never knew. Looper's cousin Adele occasionally found herself getting angry I mean, really, I don't know what Billy Wilkins' true feelings are or what his true role was in all of this. I bet he knows a hell of a lot more than we do. I would find it very hard to believe that there wasn't some backroom deals being made. If there weren't backroom deals, then a lot of very weird coincidences happened along the way for the people who were somebody big in the courtroom that week. Silas Jones' federal gun charge went away. Billy Wilkins personally arranged for Wyatt or Parper to be moved to a county jail and then a minimum security facility, writing in a letter 
that Harper had been very helpful in a recent case. And just days after the trial was over, Mike Cowart wrote a letter to Greenville Police on behalf of himself and Peabody Brown, asking for a message to be passed on to Jim Christopher that they were scared and needed his help to get out. We don't know what happened to Peabody, but we know Jim Christopher arranged for Cowart to be transferred from state prison to county jail. And as for that reward, May McIntyre got $5,000. Silas Jones' attorneys got $3,000. And $1,000 went to Jim Christopher's longtime snitch, John Olin Butler, the first man to put Wakefield's name on the street. If there were no backroom deals, it just so happened that all the people who spoke Charles Wakefield Jr.'s name got really lucky in the months afterward. But you won't convince the Looper family of that. There's many more people who believe in the innocence of Charles than there are those that would stand behind what appeared to me and still appears to me to be just a sham prosecution. Billy Wilkins won't hear it. He says he did nothing wrong, and he doesn't believe the police did either. Mike was a close friend of mine, and, and Christopher was as well, but Chris moved to Columbia with SLED, and so I didn't see him much. Of course, I'm on the bench in Richmond, Virginia a lot, but I have no reason to believe that Bridges and Christopher cooked the books. They never did it in any case I've ever known, and I, I don't know uh, anybody that could ever say that they did that. Anybody. Wakefield's defense team tried. They tried to let the jury hear Mike Cowart's attorney, Dick Warder, and the story of Jim Christopher promising a quid pro quo deal. But Judge Epps said, no way. The only way Warder could testify was if someone called lead detective Jim Christopher to the stand. And that never happened. Jim Christopher was the senior lead detective on the biggest case the county had seen in years. And Billy Wilkins never called him to the stand. Wakefield's defense wanted to, but under an old rule that seems to defy logic, the defense team couldn't call Christopher if they expected him to lie on the stand and then use attorney Dick Warder to prove Christopher was lying. It's called impeaching your own witness. And back then, it was literally against the rules. Even Warren Mowry struggles to believe it. This was one of the most bizarre rules that I had ever seen. You had to vouch for a witness if you called him. You had to vouch for his veracity, for his truth, the truth of his testimony. The court rules have, have changed dramatically. South Carolina has a rule that anybody can impeach any witness at any time. The defense team believed Jim Christopher had been cutting deals all over the place, but couldn't put him on the stand. The only people who could were Billy Wilkins or Judge Epps, and both refused to do so. So the jury never heard from Jim Christopher. Those were the rules. The jury did get to see more than the law allowed, but no one knew it until five months later when Billy Wilkins wrote in a letter to the state Supreme Court that the jury had been given a witness statement that had never been entered into evidence. And so, it shouldn't have been in the jury room during deliberations. 
just so happened, that witness statement was one in which Billy Wilkins had underlined sections that disputed Charles Wakefield's alibi. Warren Mowry says if that happened today, it's likely the entire trial and verdict would have been scrapped. A judge is probably going to either vacate the conviction and grant a new trial, or if it's on appeal, the, the court is going to reverse on that basis, almost invariably. I, I'm hard-pressed to imagine that that would not happen today. That's another way things have changed in the last 40 years. Shortly after the trial, longtime Greenville County Public Defender John Malden filed an appeal for Wakefield that stretched to more than 70 pages, covering everything from Wyatt Earp Harper to Silas Jones to May McIntyre and Mike Coward. The appeal accused Billy Wilkins, in writing, of misconduct and obstruction of justice. But it didn't matter. Ultimately, it was worthless to Charles Wakefield Jr. The appeals court disregarded every claim. Back then, the rules were different. As a prosecutor, Warren Murray says, it may be easy to judge a legal strategy against today's standards, but he won't do that. We can't really judge people that were operating under rules that existed in the 1970s by the way things are composed today. We simply can't. I believe that everybody involved with this was honorable, that they were doing what they believed was right, and they were doing it within the, the law and the rules that existed in the 1970s. Have things changed? Oh, yes, they have. Uh, they have changed on continuances, they have changed on discovery, they have changed on jury composition, and a host of other things. But we cannot judge people in the 1970s by the rules as they exist in 2020. They just simply can't do that. Just as Mowry can't judge people on the rules that didn't exist to protect Charles Wakefield Jr., all of the laws that have happened since then to preserve modern justice for people today, because those rules didn't exist in 1976, they can't help Charles Wakefield Jr. as he lives and breathes today. Seems modern justice is a lot harder to come by when your conviction is 44 years old. Wakefield struggled for years to get people to listen. But only since 2019 has he felt a groundswell of public support, as Greenville begins to reckon with all the things it never heard. Like the fact one of Charles Wakefield's appointed attorneys had represented Mike Cowart on those burglary charges and tried to get him off. Like the fact Jim Christopher and Mike Bridges assigned an officer to track down people who had been in jail with Wakefield after he was sentenced to see what Wakefield was saying then. Like the fact May McIntyre said, she was working with a partner on the day of the murders, and Jim Christopher was supposed to find that partner and corroborate McIntyre's story, but there is no evidence Christopher ever did, or that the partner ever existed. Not even a name. And then, there's the reason Wakefield's attorney, Buddy Parnell, left Greenville shortly after the trial. I had grown up in a lovely bubble in Greenville, South Carolina, where we didn't know about things on the outside of the bubble, and we're very comfortable there. Mary Jane Parnell had no reason to ever want to leave Greenville, leave her bubble, especially for a place like Boston. We were going to leave the comfort zone and go. It was, it was terrifying. It was absolutely terrifying. 
People couldn't understand a word I said. But Boston, it had to be. Because at the very moment Buddy Parnell was assigned to the Wakefield case, in the 11th hour before trial. He said, Mass General, and I said, what's that? Well, Mass General just happens to be one of the foremost hospitals in the world. His son Sefton was awaiting a kidney transplant he couldn't live without. Sefton, the courageous child, who would endure a decade of kidney transplants with a lion's heart. Captain Courageous, and I know that sounds very corny, but Sefton was an, a courageous, ill, deathly sick child. He was never out of school unless he was in intensive care. Buddy and Mary Jane Parnell spent every ounce of energy and every dollar they had trying to save their son, the one Buddy couldn't care for during the month of February 1976 because he'd been appointed to save Charles Wakefield Jr. Buddy was, until the day he died, Buddy was convinced of his innocence and felt like something untoward had happened along the way. And there was a point Buddy Parnell had reason to believe the work he put into defending Wakefield had actually been a success. Later in his life, Parnell revealed, after all the trial testimony was finished, Judge Epps whispered to him, saying, I think you got this guy off. For the four hours after that, Parnell believed he had a chance. And then... He spent a lifetime thinking about Wakefield in prison, about Wilkins and what happened in the courtroom, and about everything he couldn't do as a defense attorney. Parnell remained a lawyer, but he went into securities law, working for the SEC. His daughter wrote a paper in middle school and one in high school about the Wakefield case. The only case that I knew about, um, and my dad had been working for the SEC for years, and I used to go sell Girl Scout cookies there. I couldn't tell you a story about any of his post Wakefield law stuff. Um, this is really just the story. Buddy Parnell dedicated his life to his children, and he told them over the years about Wakefield's story and about how he believed an innocent man went to prison for murder, and there was nothing he could do to stop it. I know Buddy was always convinced that he was innocent, and I don't know what Buddy thought or if there was something that Buddy knew that had happened that had made this trial go the way it did, but it angered him. It always angered him. He never let go of the anger that he felt for the way this went down. Buddy and Mary Jane's son, Sefton Parnell, underwent five kidney transplants and died at the age of 13 in 1986. Buddy Parnell died in 2009, less than a year before Wakefield finally made parole. That trial in 1976 set the stage for the decades to come, in which many of the people from that courtroom became somebody everybody knew. Prosecutor Billy Wilkins, a chief federal appeals judge. Detective Mike Bridges, chief of police. Lieutenant Jim Christopher, second in command with the state police. Miss May McIntyre, a woman the city loved forever. And her daughter Diane, a woman accused of murdering a man, along with Bub Skelton's nephew. Wyatt Earp Harper, a career criminal who killed at least one man and was suspected in the death of another 
whose last words before dying were Wyatt Earp Harper, and Silas Jones, who just two years after trial, stomped his girlfriend's six-month-old baby to death. At the autopsy, the pathologist said the baby's liver looked like ground beef. In the summer of 2019, police arrested Silas Jones again, this time for failing to report as a sex offender. All of those people became somebody, good or bad, as the city of Greenville quickly forgot about Charles Wakefield Jr. Thanks to the rules of the game in 1976, Wakefield did not leave that trial as somebody. They had basically trashed my life. They, they ruined my life. They ruined my life even to, to this point, and I'm still paying a price for what they did in 1975. I'm still paying this horrible price. And that's something Rufus and Frank Luper's family knows today. It would be a lot easier to cover this up and let one person pay a tremendous price, a nobody like Charles. Somebody somewhere in that mix of Bridges, Christopher, Wilkins, Cash Williams, Judge Epps, somebody knows what happened. And probably they all knew. Thanks for listening to episode 25. A very special thanks to April Kyle Nassi and Lee Jones for their exceedingly generous financial contributions to the podcast since the last episode. And thanks to all of you who've recently donated to help us defray the cost of putting this show together. If you'd still like to donate, you can do so by going to paypal.me slash murder ETC. That's paypal.me slash murder ETC or to the murder ETC Venmo account. And for your generosity, we're going to work to put out a lot of information and documents about the trial on our website, murderetcpodcast.com. And we hope to put out two bonus episodes very soon. One with Warren Mowry, talking about some of the more intricate legal details of the trial. And another with Mary Jane and Lizzie Parnell. And a story they told me that I honestly don't think I'll ever get over. We'll get those out as soon as possible. But until then, here's what's coming up on the next full episode of Murder, Etc. There was nothing left for Charles Wakefield Jr. but a life behind prison walls, an enduring hope, and some angels like you've never met. I am an atheist. I have never believed in God in my whole life. And I prayed on that decision. Inside the world's darkest foxhole, on the next Murder, Etc. Murder, Etc.